In this episode of the Raised with Jesus podcast, we have some audio from the Lutheran Leadership Conference from this past January back in Chicago, uh, featuring Pastor John Schrader from Faith in Sharpsburg, Georgia, talking about finding our Lutheran voice. Here goes. Good afternoon. It's a privilege and a pleasure to be here with you to talk about Lutheran leadership and about finding our voice. What if the mouth of God lost its voice? One of the most incomprehensible aspects of God's plan of salvation is that from the very beginning, God planned to involve humanity in it. I mean, all the way back in the garden, speaking of our mother Eve, God said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between her offspring and yours. He will crush your head. She will strike, or he will strike your heel, or you will strike his heel. I mean, the Savior would work salvation, but humanity was going to be involved. God was going to use human nature and human voice to win salvation and to share it with the world. And, you know, from the very beginning, from the time when man moved east of Eden and the love and grace of God were forgotten by a sinful world, God used his people to both carry the bloodline of the Savior and to carry the promise of the Savior forward. They began to call out to proclaim the name of the Lord. Of course, that bloodline and the the promise of the Savior was carried forward by, by the patriarchs by Israel, generation after generation, until 2,000 years after Abraham first heard that promise, and about 2,000 years before you and I had, the people God had called to his purpose fulfilled that purpose in the womb of a virgin, overshadowed by the power of the Most High, and bearing the hope of all the ages. Of course, in the New Testament, the need for a physical bloodline for the Savior had passed, but yet God again decided to involve humanity in his plan to save the world. Defying all human logic, God took this priceless treasure and put it in jars of clay like you and me. And it was to his church that he said, you've been called out of darkness to declare the praises of him. You, the church of God, are called on to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Now, it kind of boggles the mind that God would include humanity in his plan to save the world. It boggles the mind even more that God would use someone like me and someone like you. I mean, when we take a look at ourselves and then we take a look at the world around us, it's pretty easy to start to question the wisdom of a God who'd come up with this kind of plan. That's what was happening with with young Jeremiah when God came and told him he was going to be appointed to speak his word to the nation. Of course, Jeremiah objected. He looked at the hostile world, the hostile society in which he was called to be a speaker of God's word, and what was his objection? He said, I don't even know how to speak. So what's God's solution for someone who claims he doesn't even know how to speak? God says, I'm going to make you my own mouth. Right? Jeremiah says, Alas, Lord, I do not know how... Go back. There we go. Alas, Lord, I do not know how to speak. I'm only a child. And then the Lord reached out his hand and touched my mouth and said to me, I have put my words in your mouth. 
In Jeremiah chapter 15, God made it even more explicit. To this man who said, I don't know how to speak, God in Jeremiah chapter 15 literally says, you will be my mouth. Now, as mind-boggling as it is that God would involve humanity in the plan of salvation, the fact that he would take people like you and me and call us to be the mouth of God, that's exactly his plan. That the church is the mouth of God sharing the message of salvation to the world. You know, as more and more people in our society claim no religious affiliation, and as America continues down her progress of the continuum towards, towards post-modern, excuse me, towards post-Christian society, the church can find herself in what seems like uncharted territory. How will we as Lutheran leaders guide our synod and our congregations and our members in their mission as the mouth of God? Now, we've all heard the trends, probably all heard the statistics. If not, you'll surely hear them during this conference about not just our church body, but about all church bodies being in decline, about membership graying, about young people leaving and not coming back about Generation Z being raised outside of church and never even being in it at all. But now here's the question. What is the next three decades going to look like in the society and culture in which Wells will do ministry? Because one thing is for certain. It will not look like the past three decades. And the harsh truth is that sometimes as church workers, as church members, as congregations, we can have our our eyes and our expectations focused on what it was like during the past three decades and miss how stark of a difference it will be in the next three decades as we serve as the mouth of God proclaiming his grace in this world. David Kinnaman is the president of the Barna Research Group, and he and his group have started recently. They, they talk about the stark difference between the next 30 years of ministry and the previous 30 years of ministry. And this is what he said. He said, uh, we begun calling the surrounding culture Babylon to highlight the notable similarities between the Judean exiles of the 6th century BC and the culture in which we find ourselves right now. Because the truth is that not too long ago, North America felt pretty comfortable religiously. But like, Judah, excuse me, like Jerusalem to the ancient Judeans, it was culturally homogenous, religiously comfortable. But as cultural change has accelerated over the past three decades, many have begun to feel like exiles from their home country. Like the Hebrew exiles, many feel like they're living in a place very different from the land of their tribe. And so the example that he gave is that when Daniel and Ezekiel and the other Hebrew elites were forcibly taken off to Babylon, their view of the world was utterly changed. And in order to remain faithful to their calling as the people of God, they had to adjust to a new reality. They had to reimagine what it meant to practice their faith when the temple, I mean the very epicenter of religious practice, no longer existed. I think the comparison he makes is particularly apt. The past 30 years felt more like Jerusalem, with faith at the center, monoreligion generally assumed. But today, it doesn't take very long looking around to see that we're living in a Babylon society, faith at the margins. 
if you have any question about that, go ahead and send your child off to public university. You'll find out really quickly that assumption that the faith is at the center is so far gone. I mean, instead, we have a society here where, you know, culture and society where faith is at the margin, where, where pluralism is just the state of being, where diversity and tolerance are worshipped, where sin of all sort is accepted on every side. So what is the church to do when we find ourselves ministering in Babylon when really we long for Jerusalem? I guess the church has got a couple of different options about what to do when they recognize they're, we're here in this society that we're at. Uh, we could be like the people in Jeremiah's day who just said, the temple, the temple, the te- nothing's going to change. They just didn't believe that change was coming. I guess we could ignore the statistics, tell John Hine to give us no more presentations. (laughs) We could stick our head in the sand, and we could probably go back to coffee hour and just complaining that people don't come to church anymore. We could do that. Or maybe maybe an approach that's much more tempting for us in our Wells church body is... um, we could try to recreate a Jerusalem culture in the middle of a Babylon society. That might be an approach that that we're most tempted to do, kind of because of who we are. You know, recreating a Jerusalem culture inside of a Babylon society, that would be, you know, that would be like us trying to remove or trying to say that we're not going to be like the culture that's out there. We, you can use whatever metaphor you want. We can circle the wagons. We can live in the bubble. We can try to recreate what once was in the middle of the society that now is. Of course, this is where Wells congregations would then exist to mostly minister to Wells members. And what would we do? Well, then we'd highlight central control to ensure homogeneity And we would take our declining numbers as a talisman of orthodoxy that just proves how right we are. Does that at all feel familiar? A little bit? I mean, does life feel better for you if we have a Wells version of everything? If my kids go to a Wells school and then a Wells high school, I've got Wells friends, a Wells social circle, a Wells plumber, a Wells... Right? You get it? Trying to recreate a Jerusalem culture in the middle of Babylon. That is a tempting thing for our group because of our our personal DNA. But boy, understand what is happening when we do that. If we try to recreate a Jerusalem culture in the middle of this Babylon society, what we are doing, without question, is separating ourselves from the very people that Jesus calls on us to salt and to light. This is not a new problem for us. Almost 100 years ago, Professor August Pieper wrote about this this problem that we, we can so easily fall prey to. Listen to what he wrote. Almost 100 years ago. He says, This constitutes a particular danger for the Lutheran church, which, in order that it may not allow purity of doctrine to waste away, is rightly a foe of all unionism, So in other words, the the, the genuine Lutheran church has purity of doctrine. We rightly oppose unionism. We practice fellowship for all the right reasons. 
so that this, this truth of God's word isn't eroded by some sort of false sense of brotherly love where there really isn't agreement. That's a good thing. But Professor Pieper warns us this. He says, but thereby it readily falls prey to a conceited satisfaction in its own prudence and piety to quiet pride and martyrdom or to a loquacious pride in outward success. But for the most part, to the boast of unsurpassed orthodoxy, which then would involve us in excessive exclusiveness in its context with fellow countrymen and citizens. Does that all feel familiar? Even a little? It's so tempting for us to want to try to recreate a Jerusalem culture and pretend like we're not in Babylon. But when we do, we are separating ourselves from the very people that Jesus is calling on us to salt and to light. The other option for the church is the option that the Judean exiles had. They could look around and recognize they're in Babylon. And now here's a chance for us. What God gave to them was prophetic instruction, right? He told them through the prophet Jeremiah, um, you're in Babylon, build homes, give in marriage, pray for your city, make a life there in Babylon until the 70 years are over when I will come and take you home. The option for us, brothers and sisters, is to look around and recognize that we're in Babylon and be ready to find our voice here to find our voice and use our voice to speak God's word to this generation, this culture, at this time. No doubt the church will face considerable cultural headwinds. But when we do, we can take comfort in the fact that this is not the first time the church has faced something like this. I mean, when Jesus ascended into heaven and the Holy Spirit descended on Pentecost and this church set out to participate in Jesus' mission of calling the elect to faith through the gospel. Think of the cultural headwinds they faced. A tiny little group. A world to tell. Opposition from religious leaders. Opposition from political leaders. Pluralism rampant. Unbelief everywhere. But what did the church do? She functioned as the mouth of God. She preached Christ publicly, she shared Christ privately, she lived Christ openly. The question for us is, will Wells have a voice in this Babylon society in which we live? In a minute, I'm going to have you take a survey, so I'm going to be asking you to take your phones out. Hopefully, you'll get a cell signal, otherwise, this will go really fast. <laughs> so you're going to take out your cell phones, and you're going to go to this website, pollev.com. The first poll we're going to take, the first survey we're going to take is just a warm-up. We're going to ask what states you live in. But you're going to go to pollev.com. So poll, E is in echo, V is in victor.com. And then you're going to enter in the J Schrader 942. And I'm going to turn on the poll for us here. And hopefully, if everything works right, you can start seeing your Responses fill in. So this is just what state you live in. Just a warm-up. Make sure that you're ready to go with this for our polls for the rest of the thing. And uh, we'll take uh, 40 seconds for you to figure out how this works. Pollev.com. Jay Schrader, 942. Keep an eye on how many of you are in. 55 results so far. 
Georgia was strong early. Two hundred and sixty. Another fifteen seconds. Polev.com slash J Schrader. People are starting to talk, which means we've gotten it figured out. Gonna just check how many we got done here. 418. Oh, our sample size is growing. This will work out just fine. Okay, I'm gonna stop that poll. Thank you for sharing with that. This now the next one is the one that we really care about. All right. What I want you to do is use one word that outsiders might use to describe or define the wells. It could be an adjective like happy. It could be a doctrine like trinity. It could be a noun like potluck. But one word that outsiders might use to describe the wells. Let me get that poll open. And started. So go ahead and pollev.com. You should go ahead and have um, that option up if you were able to log into the last one. You should just be able to choose it again. And one word that outsiders might use to describe the wells. And we will, this one's a little bit more important, so I'm going to take a full minute and a half on this one. Full minute and a half. Now, hopefully, this is going to show up. Well, I got one in. <laughs> Actually, I've got a whole bunch of men. I'm just, I'm not sure why they're not showing right now. Got 385 results in so far. <laughs> this is going to work. I can feel it. I will stop it and start it again. Sure, but we'll keep all the answers. You should see it on my screen. It looks great. Bring it on. Yeah, closed. Good. Well, while you guys are thinking about it, I'll tell you right now, the number one is strict. Actually, one of the things uh, I did just in case this poll didn't work, we took, you guys are almost exactly along the lines of what we had when I took this last week at Martin Luther College. Uh, your, your top results so far is strict, conservative, Exclusive, narrow, white, cult, weird, rigid. The students at MLC built an almost exactly similar word cloud. You know, this is uh, probably not surprising, but when you take a look at these word clouds, look for something positive. You know, on the word cloud that you did, which is beautiful, you just can't see, um, the second largest one is conservative. I guess we could say that's a positive, right? Um, although keep in mind, what does conservative mean? 
I used to describe my church as a conservative confessional Lutheran church. What we mean by that is we're conservative, especially in our view towards the Word of God. We're not like those Lutheran churches that don't take the Word of God seriously. You and I know exactly what that means. Uh, For unchurched America, the word conservative means one thing. Trump. Yeah, make America great again. And now, you might be a a very dyed-in-the-wool Republican, whatever. Understand this, that the generation of unchurched people that are growing up in America right now are, by definition, politically more liberal than you are. If we want to talk about what is, what is uh, people going to say about the wealth, conservative might need to be redefined for us. You know, and you look at everything else that you put on this word cloud. Well, these aren't great descriptors, are they? But this falls completely within the experiences I've had. So I've had 15 vicars, and I've been able to teach up at Martin Luther College for a whole bunch of evangelism days. This response is absolutely no surprise to me that your word cloud looks exactly like theirs. It's what everybody says. Um, I've had 15 vicars, and I probably had this conversation with six of them. Like, uh, it would go something like this. Uh, A person comes to church. They go to church a second or a third time, and they come out, and they, the vicar's tell me the story, and he said, you know what she said? She said, this church is such a breath of fresh air, and invariably, the vicar says something like, I can't believe anybody would say that about the wells. <laughs> but here's the deal. You think the same thing, Right? You think the same thing, and so do the students at Martin Luther College. And now here's the thing. I, I, this is a problem for us because it creates a great danger for us to lose our voice. If this is what we think outsiders think of our church body, well, very quickly, we can fall into thinking that we don't have a voice for them. And what we ought to do is spiritually take care of the Wells members that we have and just keep adding bricks to the little wall around the Jerusalem we've recreated in Babylonia. You may agree with my vicars. They may agree with you. I just don't agree with either of you. I think this is part of our problem. And I think sometimes, well, maybe you're part of a congregation that hasn't had a lot of people come from outside of our fellowship into a Wells church. The statistics say most of you probably are from a church that would be defined that way, that very frequently you don't see a lot of people coming from a different denomination or from unchurched or dechurched being members of the wells. And I can't blame you then if we become myopic and think that this is the definition of our church body in the minds of outsiders, and I couldn't blame you then if you felt maybe we didn't have a voice in this Babylon society so let's get busy recreating Jerusalem. I just don't agree with you. And I want to tell you about what it's like to go from a different Christian experience to the wells, except I don't want you to hear it from me. I want you to hear it from a few people that uh, these folks are, so these folks all had a Christian background. I selected them for that reason because they very specifically have a reference point to look at a different denomination and what happens when they find the wells. They all were unchurched or de-churched for some reason when we found them. But I think these couples have a unique perspective for you about what outsiders see in the wells that we have. 
in seeking a church family, we grew up in different denominations. So Devin was very accustomed to the Lutheran order of worship. I came from a different background, and really the most important thing for me is just clarity of message and clarity in delivering those biblical concepts, and that's what we really found here. We were looking for something different approximately two years ago, and being lifelong members, born and raised and married in a Catholic church, we weren't exactly sure what we were looking for. A church family, we really wanted to have a group of people that we could really connect with and you know, lean on. We don't have a fam we don't have family around here. I'm from Ohio and he's from Florida, so it was important for us to find a group of people that could really be there to support one another. When I was looking for a church home, or we were as a couple looking for a church home, we really wanted one that um, was really focused on worship. That was not where uh, you were a spectator at a worship service, but you were really a participant in the worship service. We were also looking for a lot of families because we do have two young children. So when we walked in and they had the children's sermon up front and so many kids went up to the front. That was really great to see. The, the worship service, there's a joy to it. Uh, people really are, are happy about their salvation. Pastor has a great expression that he's used in a sermon. Uh, it says the gospel served neat. And that's what we've found here. It's an undiluted and very consistent message, which really resonates with me and with us. An entirely new realm of, of knowledge about the Bible and about how all this came to be was kind of put right there in front of me that, that I just didn't experience in, in my past. I think, too, what we didn't realize is before we started coming here, and again, we've been churchgoers for a long time, is that we were off-center. You know, a lot of, um, we were focusing on the wrong things. And hearing that consistent message Sunday after Sunday and even expanding that with going to Bible study each week um, really helped us recenter on what was the right things to be looking, looking to and um, just focusing our lives around. The motto, you know, grace alone, faith alone, scripture alone, uh, you know, permeates everything to do with our church. Since, since we've come here, started coming here regularly, this church has become a regular part of our lives and um, has had a huge impact on our on our marriage and, and both of us as people in our faiths. We hadn't really had maybe the tools to have those types of conversations before, so in turn it grew our faith, it grew our marriage, um, and it was just such a unique experience that um, you know I hadn't gone through before, so it was great. I've never been more connected with the Lord's Supper and with communion than I have here just the solemn nature of it and the the, uh, the whole concept of we're a family of believers participating in it together. This is one of the best things that, that's happened to me in the last you know few years without, without question. I, I love it here. I love this place. I love the leadership of this place. And I would do anything I could to help it. You know, that's what... She meant when she said, this is a breath of fresh air. When people are coming from outside of our fellowship, what they're finding among us is some amazing things, right? They're finding, think about the things they mentioned there. Think about the worship that is, that we have in the Confession Lutheran Church. They find a worship that's not about the whim of the speaker, a worship that's focused on the centrality and the means of grace. You find the fact that you've got a, uh, relationships. You talk about outreach in a Babylon society. Relationships are going to be one of the most important aspects of our work in outreach. And now here's the thing they found is they found authentic relationships in the Christian church. And now here's something that is we really kind of have a strength in the wells because of the fact that we are so small.
You know, the median attendance and worship in the wells is something like 67. Most of our churches are really small. When I meet with churches that have small numbers in attendance, I always remind them there's a beautiful thing about being small because you've got this opportunity to build authentic relationships with your visitors and the people who come back. I mean, every big church I know, whether they're a mega church or whether they're a church of 600, they spend a lot of time and effort to split the church up into shepherding groups or growth groups or or accountability groups or connect groups. Why? Because they want to have a big church act just like a small church where everybody knows each other's name. They notice when you're not there. Now you think about this Babylon society in which we live and the strength we have there and the fact that we have a bunch of small congregations because we live in an increasingly insular society. Right? You can now, you can, you can get gas, you can get your groceries, you can shop for clothes without ever talking to anybody. We're an increasingly insular society and at the same time when the, the locality of families has changed completely. It's not like generations ago where you lived on the farm next to mom and dad and Uncle Bill lived across the back 40. In so many of the communities we serve, everybody's from someplace else. They don't have those family connections, so sociologists, they say, everyone's got to drive today to retribalize, to find that third place that isn't work, that isn't home, where everybody knows their name. People are looking for that. Think about what we can offer them. Something far greater than they can even imagine that they're looking for. Authentic relationships? We have the opportunity to share with them membership in the body of Christ. And I think we should spend very little time bemoaning the fact that we're small. In this Babylon society where relationships are key to witnessing, this can be a strength of ours. Another thing you keep hearing about is uh, the Bible-based knowledge. You know, the cold worker training system that we have in our church body produces some amazingly educated, talented, and resourced public workers in the gospel. Uh, Now, in my part of the country, in Georgia, it doesn't take a whole lot to be clergy. You just need to hear the call while you're pumping gas. The the idea of a professional, trained, credentialed clergy isn't really there. But, you know, in so many places, the the training system that we have, um, and what unchurched people are looking for is an understanding, and we'll come at this again later, an understanding about the things of God. We are exceptionally well-trained for that. And the one thing that they will find in every one of your churches is what Jonathan Hightower mentioned when he talked about the gospel being served neat, undiluted, unwatered down. That is something that is life-changing for people because I got to tell you, we kind of, we can think about what other churches bring to the table. They don't bring that. You know, we might think the evangelical megachurch down the road is preaching Jesus, and sure, but they're not all about the gospel. They're all about the law. The confessional Lutheran church is the voice in Christendom in America that brings undiluted gospel. What a huge, amazing opportunity we have. Because what we're offering people is a certainty that they could not have, even if they were involved in another Christian denomination. You know, when we talk about owning our voice, I want you to listen to something that uh, Kayla and Adam Wamsley said. These were uh, a young couple who first came to our church when they were 22, 23, and they wrote about this in Ford and Christ a couple of years ago. So Kayla and Adam had both grown up in church and uh, going to church pretty much every week. So Adam attended uh, Baptist and Methodist churches. Kayla attended Nazarene and evangelical churches. But this is what Kayla wrote. 
He said, you know, in the churches where I grew up, we didn't believe in works-based salvation. It was actually preached against. But there was always a feeling I had to do something. I felt that God knows my heart, and I hope that's good enough, but that is a scary place to be when you absolutely believe in heaven and hell. We talked about other religions where people didn't know if they would go to heaven, but in reality, we didn't know. After starting an adult instruction class, she said, it finally became clear that not only did Christ take away my sins, but he gives us his holiness. And that was the part I'd never been taught in the churches where I grew up. It's so comforting to know that when God looks at me, Jesus' holiness is what he sees. These people so value the testimony that the Wells has to bring because what we have in our voice is something that's missing from so many of the denominations around us. And it's exactly what these people who came from a de-churched background absolutely needed to hear. And you know what? It's also exactly the kind of thing that people who've never been in any kind of denomination absolutely need to hear. That struck me with a man named Logan. Logan uh, came into my study one day and he said, "Um, I've never been in a Christian church before. Can we talk? Absolutely. Logan was 43 years old, and for 43 years he had been an outspoken, thoughtful, vociferous atheist. Uh, He married an atheist wife, he raised atheist children, never been in a Christian church before. Um, And he said, you know, 12 years ago I watched you you as you built this church. And something happened in between. You know, a few weeks prior, he sat with his mother as she died of cancer. And something, something kind of broke open inside of Logan. And he said, you know, I, for 12 years ago, I watched you build this church. And for 12 years, I've been getting invitations in the mail. And people hang up stuff on my door. And I get invited to your events by my friends and neighbors. And I thought, well, you know, if I ever go to a Christian church, I'll go to that one. So here I am. Can I come to church on Sunday? (laughs) Absolutely, right? You're both both immediately at that point excited and absolutely terrified, right? (laughs) The one time, the first time he's ever going to be in church, you think about about all those years of mailing and invitations and door hangers, and it led to this moment where a man whose circumstances broke open in his heart that made him think perhaps this group might have something to say. And then you think, what in the world am I going to (laughs) say? This is a man who all the statistics would say is never going to give an ear to the message that we have. And as the church, which is called to be the mouth of God, we could spend all day long, um, you know, wondering how in the world we could answer all the objections he's obviously going to have all the questions or, or the consternation or even maybe just the idea of what, that he doesn't believe these things that we're saying. But, you know, here's the thing. We have the gospel served neat. And that turns out to be all we need. Logan came to worship that Sunday for the very first time ever in a Christian church. And you know what he heard. Right? He, he heard that man cannot stand before a holy God. And so God came and stood in our place. That sin can't be rationalized, it needs to be atoned, but the sacrificial price was paid for in the flesh and blood of the Son of God. That Jesus is not some long-dead moral leader, not some inspirational self-help swami, but he is your sin-bearer, he is your hope-bringer, and he rose from the dead to open eternal life. You know what he heard. 
And the Spirit does his thing. You know, and five months later, in front of hundreds of people, Logan was baptized into the faith that he had long denied. God told Jeremiah that he would put his words in his mouth. That's the promise he gives to the church, to you and me. And here's the thing. We can own that voice because those words have power. Like God said, is not my word like fire, like a hammer that breaks a rock to pieces? This is the tool God's given us, the only tool to open the heart of man. Whether that heart belongs to a man in the pre-modern, pre-literate, pre-Christian world, or that heart belongs to the man in the post-modern, post-literate, post-Christian society of Babylon we find ourselves in. But the truth of the matter remains. The word of God intends to continue hammering its way into the hearts of men until Jesus is finally finished calling all of his elect to faith. Of course, Slogan, uh, when we were in adult instruction class, he was obviously very concerned about his family. I mean, he married an atheist wife. He raised atheist children. They're looking at him now like he'd grown a second head. What do I do about them? They trust you. Tell them to come and see. You know, the day that Logan was baptized, out there in the pews sat his wife and his children. It was their very first time in a Christian church. You know what they heard. You know. Now, I pray for Logan's family regularly. I don't know what's going to happen with his wife and his children, but I do know this, that every time they come into contact with one of our churches, they will be served the gospel neat. That is a voice I can own. Now, I am convinced that we in our Wells church body right now has a huge opportunity to be the mouth of God in this Babylon society in which we live. I mean, we have worship that is centered in the means of grace. We have congregational sizes that lend themselves to authentic relationship building. We've got a called worker system that continually trains excellent workers and who every year are becoming more and more experienced in missions. And in mission, not just mission experience, but mission drive. We have a message that serves the gospel neat. We have what the world needs. Let's own our voice and use it. We don't need to find something new for the next 30 years. But we definitely need to use the voice that God has given us. I mean, that means recognizing that we have been invited by Jesus to participate in his mission of calling the elect to faith through the gospel. And that is a call to action for this generation that will grow up in Babylon. Will we proclaim the unchanging truth to a people adrift on a sea of relativity? Will we be willing to engage a culture that trumpets inclusivity with the exclusive message of salvation in Christ alone? Will we have the audacity to storm the gates of hell with the message of sinners saved by faith through grace alone? Let's not be a church that's known for what we're against. Let's be a church that leans into her core mission. Let's be the church that's known in our community as that's the one that preaches grace neat. Because you know what? Those other churches, they preach grace, but it's not alone. They preach faith, but require a decision. They preach scripture, but they think it says too little about our modern times or altogether too much. They preach Christ as a way, but not as the one and only. We, we will be the church of God's great alones. That's a voice we can own as God uses us as his mouth to shout his grace to the world.
In uh, August of 1914, the world was at war. And the military situation of the French and the British on the Western Front had become desperate. The Germans had crushed Belgium, the steamroller rolled through, and then uh, General von Kluck's first army was knocking on the doors to Paris. A frantic call was made from Paris to St. Petersburg. In order to save Paris from destruction, Russia was to become the shock absorber. And so the Russian Imperial Army invaded Eastern Prussia with a massive force, 650,000 men. It was opposed by a German force of only 135,000. They met near a place that is remembered as Tannenberg. The result of the battle was the highest number of men killed in a single-day battle in the history of mankind. And the battle was an unmitigated disaster for the Russians. It resulted in the near annihilation of Russia's second army. 250,000 Russians died that day. And its glittering aristocratic officer corps went into East Prussia to their death. It marked the end of Tsarist Russia as a fighting force. It unquestionably led to the downfall of Tsar Nicholas and the rise of the Bolshevik Revolution in 1918 question is, how in the world did it happen? The Russians outnumbered the Germans five to one. Was the problem with the Russian soldiers? Well, it was interesting. Uh, you listen to a conversation between the general and the colonel on the German side most involved with that battle, and they said this. General Ludendorff said, die Russischen Soldaten kämpfen wir Bären. The Russian soldiers fight like bears. And the colonel says, gewiss, Herr General, aber diese Bären von Esel angeführt. Yeah, but these bears are led by donkeys. <laughs> these bears are led by donkeys. Yeah, leadership matters uh, in war, certainly in the church. I mean, yes, the voice that we own in the wells, we've got some amazing opportunities in front of us today, but it would be leading like donkeys for us to say, well, let's just continue as we've always done. I'll be leading like donkeys. I mean, those Russians had a five-to-one numerical advantage, but yet they were led by donkeys, and it went to ultimate destruction. You know, you and I, as Lutheran leaders in the church, our job is to lead God's people and to lead God's church in this new society in which we live in Babylon. You know, my regular prayer is, you know, Lord, don't let me lead like a donkey. I, you know, I don't let me take everything that you've given in our congregation, in our members, in our personal gifts, and don't let me misuse them. Don't let me leave them unused. Because we want to do more than just own our voice. We want to do more than pound our chest and say God has given us the opportunity to be, to be the voice of the gospel in Babylon. We want to use our voice. And leadership in this area couldn't be more important. I mean, where will we use our voice? How will we use it? How will we resource it? What will we do to support the efforts to share it with the flock and with the lost? That is Lutheran leadership for the next three decades. You know, and as the church intersects with this culture, we want to make sure that we find a way to use the means of grace in the best possible ways. Of course, our job in outreach is really pretty simple. Identify the lost in our community and share the gospel of Jesus with them. How are we doing at that in the wells today, corporately? 
We have to be careful with statistics always, but I guess one statistic you could look at would be uh, adult confirmations. So this would mean someone who's coming from an unbelieving or an unchurched or a de-churched background comes through adult instruction, becomes a communicant member of our congregation. That would be an adult confirmation. We could look at that as maybe a metric uh, that might give us some insight. Well, if you take a look at the last statistical report at adult confirmations... 60% of our congregations in the wells confirmed one adult or less. 593, excuse me, congregations reported zero. The large majority of our congregations didn't see outward results of their outreach work. Now, whenever we show a slide like this or talk like this, we have to start out by being really careful and saying numbers can in no way be used to evaluate faithfulness in ministry. That is not the way it works. God grows the church when and where he wills. However, numbers like this can be used to help me ask questions about my stewardship of the means of grace. Am I being the best steward of the means of grace that I can? Am I I taking advantage of the opportunities for outreach that God is placing in front of me? Am I seeking and identifying the lost in my community and having my congregation and me and my members be like ambassadors to the lost as though God were making his appeal through us? If that answer to those questions is yes, well then, let the statistics go. Never let anyone use numbers or outward success to impugn your faithfulness to Christ and kingdom. It may be that you've been called to a ministry like Jeremiah. God told him nobody was going to listen. God told him, in fact, I'm just going to send you there to make sure that I'll harden their hearts. Maybe that's your community. Maybe it's time that God just wants to remove the gospel from your community and you're part of the way that he's going to do it. The gentle question I want to ask is, do we really think that's true of 60% of the communities that the well serves? Perhaps we have an opportunity to use things like this to ask ourselves important questions as we seek to be the mouth of God in this Babylon society. Two things that we remember as Lutheran leaders, two truths, right? God's word works. Nothing we do makes it work better. Second one is also true. God commands us to be good stewards of the means of grace. We seek to use them in the best possible way. Those are both true statements. Right? The first one says the word of God is efficacious. Nothing we do makes it work better. The spirit works when and where he wills. The word is efficacious because it is the gospel. As the Bible says, it's living and active. It's the power of God. It never returns to him empty. It has the power to open the hearts of man. Yet at the same time, God calls us to be faithful stewards of the means of grace. To use them in the best ways that we can. He tells us to preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season, to do your best, to be a workman approved, to correctly handle the word, to entrust to reliable men who are apt to teach. He tells us messengers to plant and to water, to go and to teach. He wants us to be faithful to God's word and faithful with God's word. Now, there is a tension in our ministry between those two truths, isn't there? There's a tension Nowhere does God say that the efficacy of the word excuses a lack of going or planting or watering. And nowhere does it say that our going or planting or watering is what saves. So efficacy can never be an excuse for laziness. And effort 
or results or success can never be an excuse for pride. Instead, what God says is that the word works and the church works. God promises the former and he commands the latter. And so our effort is to bring God's efficacious word to as many people we can and do it in the best way that we can. And that, that, that means asking questions about society in which we live. Trying to find the ways in which we can intersect with unchurched people so that we can share with them the efficacious word of God. Now I'm about to be bold and try another poll. We'll see if this one works. All right, pull out your phones. I'll see if I can make this one happen. Hang on. So stop presenting. Go back to activities. All right. Now, this question we're going to ask, we'll see if it works. Um, Ministry approaches that an unchurched person in my county would say would bring them to church or get them involved with someplace where the gospel can intersect with them for the first time. So this is not what you think would bring an unchurched person into an intersection with the gospel. This is if what would the unchurched people answer. Okay, so let's see if, if that's working. Is anybody able to do any responses? And with this, oh good, it's, well no, it's showing on my phone again. All right, take, take your time to do this exercise for yourself. Um, what you do is you tap on the number and you move the arrows up or down to move the ministry approach higher for those that you think would be more likely, lower for those you think that are least likely. And then I'll tell you what your results are because I've got them on my phone here. They're just not showing on the screen. We'll take one minute for this. We've got 21 responses in so far. While they're doing that, John Hine, I've got 15 minutes left. Is that correct? Thank you. 180 of you are done. Another 15 seconds. You can always tell when the murmur starts. People are finishing up. Okay, I'm going to tell you your responses. Here's what the group chose. Number one, children program. Number two, community service. Number three, marriage and family. Number four, learning about God. Number five, social activities. Number six, support programs. Number seven, Bible study. Number eight, contemporary worship. So you chose uh, children's programs, community service, marriage and family, learning about God. Those were your top four. Here's how the unchurched responded in my county. Well, (laughs) don't argue with me because I could just make up more statistics if I wanted to. Hang on. Why are you having a problem? Yeah. Here we go. Let's try this again. (laughs) 
There it is. That's the answer that they gave. So you came very close. Your children's program one was you, you were right on with that. That's no surprise seeing as how uh, um, American culture has elevated Junior to the top of every totem pole. Uh, in the 80s, they worship money. In the 90s, they worship self. In the 2000s, so far, they've worshiped their children. Not a surprise there. Also a wonderful opportunity for us if you think about the fact that right now we've got the fourth largest parochial school system in America. Think about that. Fourth largest in America. We have 2,800 people who are trained experts on communicating the gospel to children. Right? How about that? Community service. You guys selected that, and I was surprised. When I've given this poll to other people, that usually comes towards the bottom. But this is a generation that is looking for meaningful opportunities to serve. And the church, when she fulfills her role as Jesus helping hands to a hurting world, to use those opportunities to invite an invitational sort of uh, witnessing and evangelism with people that they might learn about, um, that they might learn what the church is like and why we do it. It's interesting that too often I believe that we tend to make our evangelism activities be social activities rather than community service. That might be because we'd prefer a potluck than to helping, feed, helping to feed the hungry. Um, switching that would not just mean better outreach opportunities, it would make us more Christ-like, right? How about number three and four? Learning about God in Bible study. Turns out that's what unchurched people say they'd be interested in. I mean, think about Logan. Logan was a vociferous atheist, but when something broke open inside of him, he went to a place that he figured would help him learn about God. Now, you take a look at three of those top four, and the things that we're really good at in the wells are three of four. We're really good at those, playing to our strengths. So why is it that we have 60% of congregations confirming one or less and 593 confirming zero? I have a thought. I think it's something like what Peter Drucker once said. He was a late management consultant, and he coined the expression, or at least quoted the expression, that culture eats strategy for breakfast. The idea there is if you talk about a company, um, a company's culture normally thwarts any strategy that, uh, that is incompatible with its culture. Would you think that's same is true about churches, about congregations, that their culture would thwart any strategy that is incompatible with its culture? If that's the case, that could explain some things, uh, some kind of puzzling things. I mean, when you think about, for example, that the number one answer to the unchurched in my community says children's programs would lead them to basically an intersection between the word of God and, and, and their hearts. And then, but then, you know, think about this. Here we have the fastest growing segment in our church body uh, when it comes to education is our early childhood program. Right? We have 328 early childhood programs right now, and of those 328, all of them exist as a tool for outreach. However, even though we have currently 3,000 identified unchurched families that are currently showing up on the campus of an early childhood program between two and five days a week, of those 328 programs, 75% of the early childhood programs in the Wells had no adult confirmations that came out of it. 75%. Why don't you think about this? About 10 years ago, I was working on the Synodical Council, and we did a, did a survey, or I did a study of the statistical report that year, and just came up with something that was, just seemed so odd. 
If you had an early childhood program, a standalone early childhood program, you were statistically less likely to confirm an adult than if you didn't have one at all. Think about that. If you had an early childhood program, you were less likely to confirm an adult than if you didn't have one at all. That is, that is counterintuitive. Why in the world would we have 75% of our early childhood programs leading to no adult confirmations? You know, in a study that, uh, that John Hine did, he, he found something else, too. He found out that 80% of all the adult confirmations in the wells that came out of an early childhood program came from 20 churches, from 20 programs. What in the world? Well, could it be, could you buy into the idea that is maybe that an explanation that culture eats strategy for breakfast? And perhaps, perhaps that's a reason why um, for many congregations, the strategy of early childhood or outreach through education resulted in fewer opportunities to share the efficacious word uh, than in other congregations is it possible that a congregation's culture, if it is, if it is member-focused or, or inwardly turned or, or not welcoming of visitors or not really expecting visitors or, or is defined by what they're against rather than what they're for, could that, ultra, could that culture be eating one of their great strategies for breakfast? Here's the really good news, all right? The good news is it's getting better. Remember how I said when Pastor Hine was looking at this a while ago and he said that 80% of all adult confirmations in the wells that came from ECE came from 20 congregations. Well, last year, 80% of the confirmations in the wells came from 56 early childhood programs. That is way better. And it's moving in the right direction. And now guess what? The tool didn't change. The word of God, the gospel was just as pure in the classrooms this year as it was the year before. I don't think the called workers were more faithful. In fact, in a lot of cases, they were probably the same called workers. But one aspect of those programs, I think, did change. Culture. You know, starting eight or ten years ago, our synodical leadership at schools, through people like Cindy Holman, our director of National Early Childhood, through conference agendas, through task forces, what, what have we been doing? We've been training churches and called workers about building a culture of outreach around our early childhood programs. I mean, the workers coming out of Martin Luther College, they've been hearing about harvest strategies for eight years now. A large percentage of our early childhood programs have gone through a training session teaching them to help build and establish a culture of outreach. Instead of 80% coming from 20, 80% is coming from 56. Addressing culture can lead to more opportunities for us to share this efficacious word with people who so desperately need to hear it. My encouragement to you is use your corporate outreach efforts to establish a culture of outreach and invitation that builds on our strengths and provides the context for Fran witnessing. Uh, Pastor Hyde, I'm blowing by by about five minutes. Oh, goodness. All right. Then I'll be five minutes late from that, too, probably. Yeah. Yeah. Corporate outreach efforts are a really important part about establishing a congregational culture of outreach and invitation. Fran witnessing is absolutely going to be the important thing that we're going to be doing in this Babylon society. Building relationships with people, using that relationship to make personal invitations or personal witnessing to them. 
but your corporate outreach efforts can provide a huge benefit in providing the context, the context for that invitation. Uh, I was struck by this uh, a few weeks ago, it was actually a couple of months ago. I was at the gym, and I go to the gym at the same time, and there was this little old man, he's about 90 years old. He can hardly walk, he's always brought around by his, his, his personal aid, and he comes from a congregation, a church that is all about um, personal witnessing. And there is always, there's always another man that's with us about the same time, a Pakistani man. Well, one day, it was a Tuesday about 12.30 in the afternoon, and, and the little old guy, he decided today was the day the Pakistani was going to learn about Jesus. And <laughs> so we're in the locker room, and you know, he gets in his face, and he gives him this personal witness, and he did a pretty good job, except for the fact that he was naked, just completely <laughs> naked. I mean, he's standing there wearing nothing but a smile in the gospel, witnessing to the Pakistani man about Jesus. And I just thought, that's really good, but maybe the context could change a little bit. (laughs) Corporate outreach efforts can provide us with with, uh, great contexts for Fran witnessing. And, you know, we could maybe talk about it. Now, I cannot begin to tell you what you should do in your context. That is for you and your people to figure out. Uh, I'm not going to tell you you need to do X, Y, and Z. That's, that's, you need to go home, and you need to find out what God leads you guys to in your context. But I'm going to talk a little bit about some of the things that we've learned about a corporate efforts that allow us to establish a culture of outreach and invitation. And I'll use uh, our preschool as an example just because we've, we, uh, we were talking about that. And, um, the, yes, please. So oh, I'm sorry. Friends, relatives, and neighbors. So the idea of witnessing to the people that you know. Thank you very much. Yeah, friend means friends, relatives, and neighbors. So witnessing to the people that you know. Thank you very much for stopping me. Um, let me talk about this woman named Morgan. Morgan is a mom who uh, enrolled in our preschool for the fall of 2019. She is unchurched. Um, and uh, her, she uh, is a great example of somebody when we talk about establishing a culture of, uh, that builds relationships, that's intentional about the gospel, and that uses the means of grace as, the, uh, as a central place to intersect with her. And Morgan, you know, Morgan, our interaction with Morgan, if you talk about building a culture of outreach, it's something that doesn't happen quickly. Our first, our first uh, interaction with Morgan would have been back in January when she first got information from, I, don't, I forget if it was either a, a Facebook-boosted ad series or if it was one of the Google ad series, uh, you know, making sure that we have a website and we purchase, uh, we purchase uh, advertisements that are able to target the people that we understand we think would be most likely and ready to uh, be intersected with the gospel in this way. A month later... She came in for a tour with our preschool director. We do not allow online registrations. It's not because we don't know how to build a website. It's because we think that relationships are key to outreach. And so the first thing we want every person who registers at the school to do is come in and meet my director because she's awesome. She's fantastic. So she comes in and she tours. A month later, she registers. And then during that time, she becomes part of this preschool family, which is going to kick up again in August, where 14 or 15 people are going to be involved in holding an orientation session, where Morgan and her family gets to come in and be familiarized with the campus, begin to meet our staff, begin to meet the teachers, and get a chance for us to start building a relationship with her. After that came eight weeks of excellent preschool education during which time we wanted to try to do everything we could to build authentic, organic relationships with the parents. I mean, we do that with even things down to simple procedures, like we don't allow people to drop off at the, in the driveway. Every parent wants it, but we make them park, make them walk the kids in and sign their child into the room with their teacher because that means every day they get to meet their teacher. 
And the teachers, we've got a policy that they don't get to call Morgan Billy's mom. Got to call her Morgan. We're going to give you photo flashcards. We're going to let you practice for a few weeks before they get here. But you're not going to call her Billy's mom. You're going to know her name. Because this is the first step into establishing relationship with her. You know, for the next um, few months, every day, the teacher and the aides get to meet with Morgan as she brings Billy into school. Then uh, on the, towards the end of October, we'll have a preschool party, where the preschool party is just a simple idea where all the parents come with all their kids during the school day, and we get to eat lunch with the parents. The teachers and the aides get to sit across from their parents and talk with them about their children, enjoy each other, build a relationship, and the point of that party is to invite people to come to our fall festival worship event. And the teacher did that. Morgan didn't come. Yeah. But the next week... We had a canvas, and Morgan's house was canvassed. And our canvas was, uh, our canvases are a little bit different than, uh, we don't do the no- standard knock on somebody's door. Um, we used to get about six or eight people canvassing. And uh, if you ask people why they don't want to canvas, you can probably guess what their answer is, right? They're afraid of talking to people, right? So we just changed the way we canvassed. Because everybody was afraid of canvassing, we started a different kind of canvas. We call it the no talking necessary, no training necessary canvas. It is literally just putting a door hanger on somebody's door, then walking to the next door and put it on there. We went from six to eight to 60 to 80 people canvassing. Now, I, I've talked with people who think canvassing's time has come and gone. And I would even be willing to say that us being out hanging a door hanger is a whole lot different than canvassing where we're actually talking to people. But I want you to think about this. But what happens when you have 60 to 80 people from your congregation canvassing in a community? It's more than that you cover more homes. It's that you've got 60 to 80 people with skin in the game in outreach. 60 to 80 people who are much more likely to be looking for an unchurched visitor on fall festival because they were part of the process to invite them. People who are much more likely than to be involved in all sorts of other aspects of your congregational outreach work. People who will be much more likely to invite their friends and their neighbors and their relatives to join us. I mean, Canvas has got benefits way beyond the number of homes you reach. Um, For Morgan, that didn't really work either. She didn't come to Fall Festival either. Um, But then in month of December, we went ahead and had another preschool party. This time, our teacher had known Morgan for for many months. They'd established a relationship with each other, and our teacher just simply said, Morgan, what are you doing on Christmas? You should come join us for Christmas Eve. And God be praised, Christmas Eve, Morgan showed up. Two days later, a late couple takes her a thank you package. Two days after that, the uh, pastoral visits try to start on, yeah, that was on the 3rd, and Morgan wasn't home, so we had to go back on the 6th. Finally had a chance to follow up with her and invite her to come to our adult instruction class that starts this Sunday, and Morgan and her family are coming. What a wonderful thing. And you know what comes next. Four months of adult instruction class, a few hours of assimilation, and then at the end of it all, you realize it was 17 months and 85 people involved to move one person from the preschool to the church through the work of the Holy Spirit. You might look at that and, and, and wonder if it's worth all that effort, because that's a whole lot of work. But, I mean, think about what's happening here. First of all, this isn't just happening with Morgan. There's 101 other preschool families. But the other thing is there's 85 people involved in outreach efforts that are creating a culture of outreach and invitation in our congregation. And that leads to really wonderful opportunities and contexts for personal witnessing and invitation that are, that are maybe, again, better context than naked in the gym locker room. 
you know, and people can grow in that too. Like I've got this woman named Linda. She works in the bakery at Kroger, and she's, she'd never see herself as an outreach person. Um, but, you know, I was talking to her with her at Kroger in the cheesemonger walk. I don't do they still call them cheesemongers. The cheese lady walks over. And Linda, who's never done this ever before in her life, said, oh, you've got to come to Fall Festival. It's so much fun. Now, that wasn't a personal sharing of the gospel, but it did result in this woman being invited to a place where the gospel served neat would be heard. And it allows her to take baby steps in her growth as a witness for Jesus. And eventually she'll get to be somebody like Nancy. Nancy's a lady who, when we brought her through adult instruction class, she said, you don't want me to be part of this church. I'm just trouble. And I said, we want you, Nancy. And Nancy, um, Nancy felt that adult instruction class was transformative for her life. And so her invitation is different. She finds her friends, her relatives, and her neighbors, and she knows that we're going to have adult instruction class four times a year. She knows they're going to be welcomed and ready. And so what Nancy says is, this changed my life. It will change yours. And she doesn't just tell them. She puts them in her car and brings them. <laughs> then she sits with them through every class. Nancy's gone through our adult instruction class, I think, eight times. Has brought 10 people through. Nancy's 80, right? What an amazing thing. I guess my encouragement for you is all of this takes an awful lot of hard work. It's hard to change culture. Start out by changing behavior. Use your corporate outreach efforts to begin to establish this context of invitation and outreach in your congregation. God never promised us it wouldn't be hard, and he never promised us outward success. But he absolutely did promise us that it would be worth it. Because we, the mouth of God, have been given a message meant for a dying world. You know, and it was, it was 98 years ago this week uh, when this one happened, when the children, they were dying. They were all dying. There was a whole sick ward full of them. It was January 23rd in 1922 in Toronto. The children were all in a state of diabetic ketoacidosis. Most of them were already comatose. Of course, no cure existed. Uh, families huddled by just waiting for the inevitable. The air hung heavy with the morbidity and the grief of the families who couldn't do anything to stop their children from quietly slipping from life. So I wonder if they even noticed the three young doctors who entered the far side of the room and started kneeling in every bed. But before those three doctors got to the last dying child in the ward, a murmur rose from the far side, a murmur that grew louder and louder because in one of the most dramatic moments in medical history, the children were waking up, coming out of a coma, moving from doom to death to vibrant life. Those children, those parents, they had no idea what those doctors were bringing, but it was absolutely essential to life. One of those three young doctors, Frederick Banting, he ended up winning the Nobel Prize for his work in insulin. Ended up being knighted by King George V. But do you think those honors had anything in comparison to what it felt like to be part of the process that day that took a room full of dying children and gave them the gift of life? Brothers and sisters, God has given us that kind of unbelievable privilege when he made us his mouth, because the words he's given us 
They are the gift of life for a dying world. Jesus has given us his promise that the voice of his holy Christian church will never be silenced. So as Lutheran leaders, we can have the confidence to own our voice and to use our voice for the glory of God and the salvation of man. Thank you.